Well, I want you to know that it's my privilege to be here this evening, and I am very thankful for the invitation. Uh, thankful to this good eldership for many things. Um, one of your elders was mentioning Leah and Mark and the kids a minute ago, and how much uh, you enjoy and appreciate them, and, and uh, I'm thankful for that. But I'm thankful that a good eldership is watching over my children. Uh, my goal and my aim, as well as my wife and I, have always been to just get our kids to heaven and as many as we possibly can. Thankful for you being here this evening. Thankful for this series of lessons. Tonight I'm going to be speaking on the subject, the uniqueness of God in a, in a world of ideas. When you think about God and we have been trying to emphasize at Adamsfield here lately personal evangelism. And I think this is something that we have gotten away from. Uh, I really think in the church we're, we're doing a bad job in relationship to this. We need to be more soul conscious. And maybe it has to do with the mission work in which I am involved. But there are people who are losing their souls every minute of every day. Your neighbors, my neighbors, our friends, our kinfolks, whatever the case may be. But one of the things that I find and one of the things I have recognized in trying to teach outside this country is that it used to be, and believe it or not, I've been preaching for now 41 years. And when I was a young man, and preaching, people, you could go into their homes and ask them about the Bible, and just about everybody would tell you that they believe the Bible is God's inspired Word. We know and we understand 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We understand that. But this day and age, our world is going further and further and further away from that. I remember as a teenager graduating from Carbon Hill High School in 1973. I first went to Carbon Hill in 69 and 70. Uh, actually, it was 70, 71. And I met a biology teacher, Miss Ray. Miss Ray was only 247 years old. She had taught my grandparents, she had taught my parents, and now we had moved back into that area and she was teaching me. She could not only teach biology, but she never opened the biology book and she'd say, turn to page 127, and she'd start quoting it verbatim. I remember the day that she said, now I'm going to teach you something that I don't believe. It was a new word. It was called evolution. It's a story about how man originated. Let me tell you something. What I'm going to say tonight differs. Differs. It's totally opposite of what the world thinks and believes today and is trying to teach your children and will try to teach your grandchildren and try to enforce and try to make them feel like they're dummies if they believe in some kind of God. 
Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. I'm going to talk about the uniqueness of God. I, I don't know how to do that other than to open God's inspired Word. When you look at Acts chapter 17, beginning of verse 22, I first thought of Paul as he's standing on Mars Hill. And as he speaks to the men of Athens and he says, I perceive that in all things that you are too superstitious. They were too superstitious. They had altars to every god. I don't remember as a boy having to think so much about Hinduism or to think so much about Confucius or to think so much about Joseph Smith or to think about Islam or to think about all of these different ideologies that are coming out now. And as they invade our country, our country was based upon and it's on our money. In God we trust. How much longer will that be? How much longer will it be? Paul said, I perceive that in all things that ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and behold your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Listen. Whom ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. That's who I'm here to declare unto you this evening. When you talk about the term uniqueness, you're talking about something, in general terms, something that is rare. But I like the definition, one of a kind. One of a kind. And when you think about God, God is one of a kind. I found 46 different passages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Bible that makes this claim. In Isaiah 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord. And there is no other besides me. There is no God. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, a passage that I dearly love. It states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Now how many gods do you believe there are? The Bible makes the claim and makes the statement that there is but one God. There's not many ways. You look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Speaking of Christ, the Son of God, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's not a multiplicity of ways. You cannot do as the world says. And here's the ideology. Attend the church of your choice. You can go to heaven any way you want to, as long as you're sincere. My friends, those statements are just not true. You can't attend the church of your choice. You must attend the church of God's choice. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, 
when Christ came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he began to ask his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he began to say, Some say you're Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But whom say ye that I am? Peter, always the impetuous one, speaks up and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now you know what? There's not but one God. There's not but one way. There's not but one church. It's unique. If it is not, we need to close our doors and go home. Because if you can be saved any way and every way, why are we spending our time and our effort and our energy trying to please the one and true God? Go back to the Bible. Psalms 86 this time in verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Listen to Isaiah in chapter 44 beginning in verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, His Redeemer, the Lord of the host, I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not a long since announced to you and declared it? And you are my witness. Is there any God beside me? And is there any other rock? I know of none. That's a pretty strong statement. There's no other God. Listen to what Paul told the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning of verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of sacrifice to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in this world. <laughs> I don't think we've learned that lesson too well. The first Saturday night that I was staying in, in, uh, in Savu Savu this year, and I'm, I'm teaching in the South Pacific, Pacific Bible College is what I'm doing. And working during the day, we're working with individuals and trying to convert as many as we possibly can. But that first Saturday night that I was there, there's always strange noises. You ever notice that? You go to a city and you sleep in a hotel and you hear every noise that's outside that door. But that night was different. I, I actually thought <clears throat> I had uh, uh, maybe gotten into one of these movies where they, uh, in the jungle, they beat that drum that, that sounds like a, uh, a hollowed out log. And that's what it is. And I heard boom. And I thought, my, I hope somebody didn't just get shot. And then I find out they don't even have guns, so that's not a possibility. And then it's boom and boom. And I guess finally when I went to sleep, the last thing I heard was the big boom. So I got up the next morning. I was asking Stacy. I said, Stacy, did you, was that a, a charismatic religious group? What, what was that? He said, no, it was the Hindus. 
Well, well, what were they doing? He said, they're scaring away evil spirits. They're scaring away evil spirits. That's real to them. And if we're going to introduce Jesus Christ to them, we have to make Jesus Christ just as real, but we have to show them the unique God, the one and the only, the one who in the beginning said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who said, let us make man in our image, and he did so. Our God is unique. Going back to the statement of Paul, that there is no God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. I love that statement. Paul said, I don't care how many gods that, that you talk about, and I don't know how many gods... I don't really care how many are recognized in the world. There's only one. There's only one God. That's the God we serve. You go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? Who is to be equal. There's nobody that can make the claim that God makes in regards to His being, the things that He has done, the proof that He has offered for us to see and recognize. You know, Hebrews 11 and verse 1 still says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and as the Greek bears out, not seen as yet. Faith, and I may have been guilty of this when I was younger, faith is not a leap into darkness, brethren. It's not. Because you have the proof right here. I believe in God Almighty. And whatever He tells me, if He tells me I can jump and His arms are there to protect me and guide me, I'm not leaping into darkness. I'm leaping, leaping into the arms of God Almighty. If He makes a promise to me, you can rest assured that promise will be fulfilled. Second Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You continue to read. Look then in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens. I can't tell you how many times God is equated to the creation. And the creation is equated to God. There has to be evidence there, folks, that proves 
that what God said is true. I want you to look then at Exodus 15 and verse 11. Who is like you among gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You need to underline that. Working wonders. God is going to prove who He is. In Exodus 20 and verse 2 and 3, verse 3 says, and this is in relationship to the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Listen to me. If you don't learn anything else from this lesson tonight, here's a point I want you to learn. The very foundation of our faith is based upon the uniqueness of God. If God is not whom He claims He is, then neither are we. Neither are we. And it's your responsibility and my responsibility to take this book and to open it up and show somebody our God. Our God is different. Don't you just love all of the Old Testament passages that characterize the idols, things that were made of stone, carved of wood, made of metal? Nehemiah calls it a stump. You might as well go outside in your yard and cut a tree down and pray to the stump because that stump's going to do you just as much good as that image that may be carved from that wood. What is that piece of wood? What is that piece of rock? What is that piece of iron going to do for you? Is it going to answer your prayers? God will. Is it going to give you comfort in times of difficulty? Paul said to the church of Corinth of our God, the God of all comfort. But how do we know these things? Well, that's the second point. We've seen what the Bible claims. And there are many other passages that you can look at that point out the oneness of God. The second thing that I want you to see is that these claims are verified. If you go back up to Exodus 15 and look at verse 11, and that last part of that passage which talks about working wonders. When I read that passage and many of these other passages that go hand in hand with that, I couldn't help but think of how, how can I formulate this so that we can recognize the uniqueness of our God? And I think you can see the uniqueness of God, number one, in His power, number two, in His prophecies, and then in number three, I think you can see our God in the product that He has produced for us, which is the church. Let's go back and look at these things. Let's talk about the power of God. Again, every time it mentions this one God and the heavens and the earth, it always talks about our God who created. In the beginning, God created. That doesn't mean that He took from this sheet of paper 
and made a living soul. It doesn't mean he took from this piece of paper and he made the heavens and the earth. When God created, he took from nothing. And out of the nothingness, he made where you are right now. How can you not see the beauty of God many mornings? And I'll pick on my grandson over here, Carson. He and I like to hunt and fish together. This one, we like to play ball together. That one, we like to sing together. So we all have our unique points. How many mornings do you get up at the break of day and see those beautiful oranges and reds and yellows as they come over the trees. It always seems like to me right at daybreak there's a calmness. A time to reflect. A time to see. As one man once said, the hand of God. The master painter. You know, all of us carry these silly cell phones. And you know, the, the more you pay for them, the, the better they say the pictures are. Now, now, how does that make sense? If you want a picture, take a camera. You know, if you want to make a call, use a phone. Ah, well, that's a different subject. But we all have these instruments which we take pictures with. Have, have you ever taken one and got home and you, in your mind, you remember what you saw and you look at that photograph and you say, man, that's better. That's better than what I saw this morning. You don't ever do that. You don't ever do that. When you're in that moment, you recognize the artwork of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I could spend a lot of time, but I'm not going to this evening, talking about creation and evolution. And I'll just tell you, evolution is wrong, period. And, and if that's a subject for another night. But when you talk about the power of God, I, I, I can't help but think of all of the miracles and how these miracles point man to God. In Genesis chapter 6, after God has made man, we see down in about verse uh, 6 of chapter 6, it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him in His heart. And, but in verse 8 we find Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is the one that's going to make this ark because he's preparing for a flood. A what? A, you know a flood. Well, you and I know a flood. <laughs> Noah didn't know what a flood was. As far as we know, according to the Bible, the earth was watered by a heavy dew in the morning. Not rain. But yet God says, Noah, I'm going to destroy this world. I'm going to destroy everybody except you and your wife, your three sons and their wives. I want you to build an ark. 
A what? A big boat. Here are the dimensions. One door. One window. Pitch it with tar within and without. And then the heavens are going to open up and it's going to rain and flood and wipe mankind from off the face of the earth. Noah must have been truly a man of faith. He believed God and did just exactly what he said. Imagine that door closing and the heavens opening up and the waters falling and the flood rising, people wanting in, but it was too late. What must have gone through the mind of Noah and his family? Never seen anything like that before. But now God's going to take them and replenish the earth. I couldn't help but think when you look at the book of Exodus, you have Joseph as he goes down to the land of Egypt. And as he is about to, as he has now passed, Moses has risen. Moses is now going to be the deliverer for God. He comes back after he had gone into the land of Midian. He had seen that burning bush. God says, go back. Uh, well, now wait a second, God. Who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? I am. And that's important. I am. He didn't say, uh, just another run of the mill. No, no, no. I am. There's not but one. The great I am has sent me. Well, Moses goes back. Pharaoh still won't release. Miracles are performed. The magicians could imitate the miracles until you come to chapter 8 and you get down to about verse 16. And in the third plague... Moses said unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become life throughout all the land of Egypt. Now notice in verse 18, And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth life, but they could not. Now what's your assessment of this? Look down in verse 19. They say to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Now, just pause for a second and think about all of the gods that the Egyptians had. They worshipped everything. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the land. They worshipped Pharaoh. They worshipped everything. They had gods running out their ears. But they don't have a God that can do this. They don't have a God that can produce lice out of the dust. And then as the rest of the plagues go throughout, 
you come to the tenth one, and the Israelites are going to be spared by the putting of the blood over the doorpost. The angel of God is going to pass by, but the angel of God did not pass by the house of Pharaoh. And the firstborn in his household died. It's at this point that Pharaoh tells them, get out. I'm, t- I'm tired of you. Uh, it's, it's enough is enough. But then his heart is hardened again. He rushes after the Israelites. <laughs> I, I tell you, I'm, I get amused at, at us today. Because you hear folks say, oh man, if I, if I had been there, it would have been different. Doug, if I had seen these miracles, if I had seen these ten plagues, if my firstborn had been spared, which would have been Leah, you know, if it's the firstborn male, it would have been Kyle. If I had seen all these things, I wouldn't have got to the edge of the Nile River or the Red Sea and said, huh, he just, hey, we've just brought us out here to die. We're all going to die. Look, no hope. The Egyptian army's right behind us. Here they come. They're going to destroy us. Then God tells Moses to tell the people, and I love this expression, stand still. Sometimes, folks, we forget about God. And what we need to do more than anything else is just be still and be quiet. And let God handle the situation. I tell you what the wrong solution is. To start blaming God. God's the reason why my husband died. God's the reason why my wife died. My child died. God's the reason why I've lost my job. God's the reason. Hey, 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 hey. Stand still. We have a God who loves us. I know that for a fact. John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world. He loved us even when we were unlovable. Romans 5, 8, and 9. God committed His love toward us in the while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You'll never convince me that God does not care what happens in my life. Stand still. And let's wait and see what God is going to bring of this situation. The Red Sea opens. The Israelites cross over on dry land. The Egyptians come running after them. And then the water collapses and the armies of Pharaoh are destroyed. That ought to be enough. We we shouldn't need another miracle. That should have been good enough. But time after time after time, we see the miracles of God. I was looking, I think it was in uh, 1 Kings, where... Syria, I think it may be chapter 7, where Syria 
had besieged Samaria. And this is where the four lepers are out there and they're kind of stuck in no man's land. They well, we can go into the city, but if we go in the city, we're going to die of famine. Well, we can go out to the, uh, to the Syrians, but we'll go out there, they're going to kill us. All we got to lose. And they go out there and guess what? They're gone. And the Bible tells you that God has sent a great noise and has scared them off. They're gone. You go over to chapter 17, 18. 185,000 Assyrians die in one night. One angel. 185,000. Whose side are you on? I know whose side God's on. God is on the side of His children. And when you look at the power, <laughs> it's impossible to not see the power of God. And you know what? These things are not disproved. These things are factual. I, I, I want you to look at Psalms 22. I, I know my time is just about up. And Doug told me to hush at 10 after, and I've got four minutes. Psalm 22. Let, let's talk about prophecy for a minute. I, this is one of my favorite subjects. I, I absolutely love Psalms 22. This psalm deals much with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's prophetic in nature. And you start in verse 1. You, you hear that expression, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see Christ utter those words in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Um, in verse um, 8, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. You know, there was a Jewish man, uh, and I can't think of his name right now, that wrote a book that, that, that used the theory and said that Christ only took what He found out of the Old Testament so that He could imitate those things on the cross so that He could imitate the Savior. Well, now I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I'll take a joke a long way, but I'm not going to die for a joke. It, it's not worth that. And, and, and if this is... Christ, how, how, did, how did Christ get his enemies to participate in this? Did he pay them off and say, why I'm on the cross? Say, he trusted in the Lord and he would deliver him and let him deliver him. See, he delighteth in him. How did he get his enemies to participate in these very things that are said? How in the world, verse 16, some close to 1,500 years before the cross. And the Jews did not use the cross. The cross was not even invented at this time. But here is David as he's going to predict the crucifixion of Christ and the common form of death at that time was stoning. Why didn't he say, they're going to stone him to death? Well, that makes sense. Be like us saying, well, they're going to electrocute him or, or, or they're going to uh, put some kind of drug in him and stop his heart. That's a form of capital punishment we recognize. 
But way before the cross was even invented, in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. How did he know that? I guess he was just lucky. No, no, he wasn't lucky. He is the only God that can look forwards and backwards and time means nothing to Him. Time means absolutely nothing. Then the last thing, last point and then I'll hush. The product, which is the church. I spent too much time on the other. I wished I had time to go to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. To go to Daniel chapter 2, starting in about verse 13 and come on down. To go to Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28 and go through the end of the chapter. Which all of this is prophesying and pointing to the church. And then you come to Matthew chapter 16 and you have Peter saying that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon and Christ says, upon this rock I'll build my church. It wasn't Peter that the church was built upon, but upon the statement that he was the Son of God. Now I have one question for you. Has that been fulfilled? The answer is found in Acts chapter 2. Most certainly it has been fulfilled. Beginning in verse 14, Peter stands up with 11, and it says, he spoke what the prophet Joel spoke. When I preached up in Hamilton, Alabama, there was a charismatic preacher came through town one time, and they had a revival in a little bitty church building. It was very small. If it, it would hold 150 people, that would have been a great crowd. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they got getting on the radio and television and saying that what was happening there was what Joel prophesied of. Well, I had been quiet for three weeks. But when he said that, I knew he had said too much. Because I could point to Acts chapter 2 where Peter said, this is what Joel prophesied of. And I could point out at that point in time that they were misrepresenting the truth. And I don't know what was happening at their building, but what was happening at their building was not prophesied concerning Acts chapter 2. Shortly thereafter, they closed the meeting. They had a little preacher that was about this wide and about that tall. And he limped everywhere he went. Had an ingrown toenail. I heard him talking about it one time. And I got on the radio and said, these preachers down here who claim to have the power of the Holy Spirit can't even cure an ingrown toenail. He called me up and he said, I'm tired of you calling me a false teacher. And I said, I'm tired of you preaching false truth. I said, you just fulfill what you say you can do. I said, there's a cemetery right here by our church building. I've put people in it. You come out here and tell them to get up and I'll tell them to stay down and we'll see who is the power of God. And he says, you're asking me to do something that's impossible. And I said, I know it. Now why don't you quit lying and tell your folks the same thing? For some reason, he wouldn't talk to me anymore. Our God is unique. There's not another. It's only one.
Thank you.